Howdy. You're listening to the Texas A&M RUF podcast. Hope you enjoyed the talk. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. 
But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is God's word. It is because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Some of you might know that in just a few days, I wonder if anybody knows this actually. Raise your hand if you know that in just a few days, pitchers and catchers are reporting the spring training for another season. Anybody know that? One of me. Let's go. Okay. My wife knew that, really? How do you know that? That's crazy. Okay. I've got it. I don't keep up. Oh, you do it too? Excellent. Okay. We've got some baseball fans. I don't keep up with baseball through the season. It's, it's a long season. There's just too many games to keep track of. But in the fall, I'll begin to tune back in because baseball actually gets exciting when games begin to matter, right? I attended graduate school in St. Louis. That's where I went to seminary. And while there, it was hard not to root for the St. Louis Cardinals. Thank you. And anyway, the Cardinals, they feel like the Major League Baseball version of the San Antonio Spurs. Just a well-rounded organization, solid fundamentals, not too flashy. Their excellence, their success kind of does all the talking. I love both of those teams, the Cardinals and the Spurs. And if you follow baseball, you might know or remember that a few seasons back, get with me for a minute, the Cardinals went on a 17-game winning streak at the very end of the season to secure a spot in the playoffs at the very last minute. Due to their awesome end-of-the-season play, they had the chance to play the Los Angeles Dodgers in a single elimination game to decide who would continue on in the playoff run. Remember this, you're shaking your head now, so I'm going to Okay, if you don't know that. Um, a single elimination game, though. I mean, there's nothing better in sports, right? That's the best thing going. And before that game, I contacted one of my best friends who lived in St. Louis for about a decade. He's a big Cardinals fan, you know, has jerseys on his office wall, signed baseballs. And I texted him to ask how he felt about the Cardinals matchup with the Dodgers in just a few days. And the Dodgers at the time had one of the best rosters in baseball. When I asked him if he was excited about the Cardinals' chances of beating the Dodgers, he responded by saying, I have low expectations. In other words, he wasn't expecting much. And it was kind of sad to hear. I thought he'd be excited. I thought he'd be hopeful. But he said, I have low expectations. I heard someone a while back say that expectations are the blueprint for disappointment. Expectations are the blueprint for disappointment. We've all felt that be true at certain points in our life. And this is why we often try to temper our expectations so that we won't be disappointed when our expectations aren't met. We don't want to get our hopes too high after all, right? And the thing about living in a fallen world, a world characterized by brokenness and sin, is that our expectations are often unmet, right? Our expectations for relationship, our expectations for career, our expectations for family, our expectations for other people's choices in our lives. We often find ourselves disappointed. And as we're disappointed, it's really easy to grow more and more cynical about the world, about other people, even about ourselves. And the problem with cynicism, especially if you claim to follow Jesus this morning, is that it cuts across the very heart of the gospel. Because at the center of the gospel is hope. The gospel is all about hope for what God's doing in this world, hope for what God is up to in your life. Hope for renewal and restoration that's coming slowly but surely. We asked the question last night, but I wonder what your expectations are for God. What are you expecting God to do in this world? I wonder what you expect God to do in your life. What is God up to in your life specifically this morning? What do you expect spiritually? Maybe you have high expectations this morning. 
Life's going pretty well. You feel connected to God in a vibrant way. It's a good season. But maybe expectations are pretty low. You're experiencing what we might call a dry spiritual season, where God feels far away. You're not quite sure what's happening. Maybe you don't have any expectations, which if you step back and think about it, is really an expectation itself. What is God up to in your life specifically? One of the things the gospel accounts do for us is to help us develop proper expectations for what God wants to do in our lives. And what we see in John 5 is that Jesus has come to transform you. He has come to change you. He has come to make you whole. From this passage, we see that Jesus is on a mission to restore and to heal. We see that Jesus specializes in hope. It's the antithesis to cynicism. And we shouldn't expect anything less from Jesus. It's interesting to think that Jesus never looks at your life and grows cynical about you and who you are. Jesus has come to bring change and healing to you, even now. He's present and active in your life, even, even as we sit here this morning. But you know that hope can be risky, right? Cynicism and doubt, it's a lot easier. We've all been disappointed when our expectations aren't met after all. And as we have unmet expectations in life, it's easier and easier just to move toward despair and call it realism. And by doing so, we downplay the hope of redemption and restoration that God wants us to experience. Maybe some of you are thinking at this point, I wouldn't blame you. That sounds great. Idea of restoration, transformation, heard it all my life. I kind of believe it, but you're probably overselling it. It's probably not really for me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what's been done to me in my life. I'm not sure God can work in my life the way that I hear about working in other people's lives. He might want to change and heal some people, but probably not me. And I want us to see from this passage, and I don't want to be melodramatic about it, but... I want us to see that Jesus came to transform you without exception. He wants to meet you where you are. He can break through your doubt, your apathy, your cynicism, your sin patterns, your, your doubts, and he can bring change. But we tend to resist this. And it makes sense that we experience this resist, resistance, that we're prone to cynicism, and that our expectations are often unmet. It's because we live in a tension, and you might have heard this before, this phrase, the tension between what we call the already and the not yet. In other words, we live before the new heavens and the new earth where Jesus promises to fully and truly make all things new, to finish what he started, but we live after his resurrection where Jesus came to bring us true and meaningful change and redemption even now. And so we live in this time known as the already where resurrection is on offer because Christ was raised from the dead, but the not yet where we are still awaiting the day when Jesus will fully and finally make all things new. And in this time, this in-between time, Jesus is still at work and he longs to bring true and noticeable transformation to our lives. And as we consider the fact that Jesus is on a mission to restore and heal, I want us to see what I mean by that, considering three brief things this morning. First, the healing that Jesus offers. Second, our resistance to that healing. And third, the impact of that healing. So we've got the offer, the resistance, the impact. That's where we're going. And we'll start with the offer. One of my favorite singer-songwriters over the past few years is an artist named Jason Isbell. And his songs uh, contain some, you know, salty language, I guess. But he's a great storyteller. Uh, and he writes a song called Elephant. I wonder if you've heard this song, where he talks about his friend dying of cancer. And the song's about how they try to get on with life and ignore the hard fact that she's wasting away 
before his eyes. And the refrain throughout the song is really haunting. Isabel says, we just try to ignore the elephant somehow. When it comes to our broken lives in this broken world, ignoring the elephant in the room, it might be more comfortable, but it'll never lead to restoration. It doesn't put us on that path. In order to be restored, you've got to start with honesty about your life and honesty about this world. But this is hard for us because we fall into one of two traps when it comes to honesty. On one hand, we fall into the trap of downplaying our depravity. We think we're not that bad. It could be worse. At least I'm not as bad as that person. We start thinking relatively, uh, comparing ourselves to others, and we tend to take sin lightly. That's one hand. On the other hand, though, we can fall into the trap of downplaying the idea of renewal. We think it's a nice idea, but not really possible. So on one hand, we might avoid honesty about our lives, and on the other hand, we question whether or not restoration is too good to be true, and thankfully, we see that Jesus does neither of those things in this passage. He is one who knows the darkness that characterizes our lives. He doesn't put blinders on. He sees it full stop. But he is also one who offers complete restoration and renewal. In fact, you would say that Jesus specialized in broken, needy people as you read his accounts on the pages of the Gospels. He comes just for that type of person in order to bring healing. And it's implicit, even in the fact that he made his way to this pool in John chapter 5. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, and isn't it interesting that he doesn't visit the palaces, he doesn't go to the political elite, he doesn't pay a visit to religious leaders, but instead he goes to what we might call the hospitals, the places of need. The passage tells us that Jesus made his way to this pool called Bethesda. And it's a place full of hopelessness. One of the most hopeless places you probably could have been in all of Jerusalem. A place, according to verse 3, full of the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And one man has likely been there longer than any other. One man in particular who is especially hopeless, you might say. The invalid of 38 years. This is a paralyzed man. One who had to sit next to this pool in hopes of being healed for a long time. His situation was hopeless. People would have had to have moved this man from place to place unless he crawled. All of his income came from begging. His hygiene problem would have been enormous if you think about it. People likely stayed away from him, likely tried to look away. But we see in our passage that Jesus was to say, saw him. Jesus saw him. Jesus sees this man, he approaches him, he speaks to him, he offers him healing. And this is how it works. Jesus comes and sees us in our hopeless conditions. He initiates with us. It's Jesus who approaches us, pursues us. He wants to meet you where you're at in whatever condition you find yourself in this morning. Maybe for you it's a struggle with depression or a sense of worthlessness or a struggle with pornography or self-harm. Maybe for you it's a body image struggle or a friendship that feels like it's on life support and you're struggling with debilitating shame and you just feel lost and you're full of hopelessness. But you're being reminded this morning, the fact that you're sitting here is not an accident. God has seen you. You are being reminded from God's word that Jesus sees you. He knows the seriousness of your situation. And Jesus comes to offer you a new possibility. He walks into our broken lives and he asks a strange question. Did you see the question he asked in verse 6? Look at it. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Do 
Do you want to be changed? Do you want to be made whole? And it's an odd question from Jesus. Seems like it would be an obvious answer, right? But we'll see it's not so obvious. And it's a question that you need to answer this morning. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be renewed? We see that Jesus comes and he offers healing. Now let's turn and look at our resistance to the healing that he offers. Maybe you're wondering why this man was sitting beside this pool. Maybe you're not, but you should be. So I'll tell you. Verse 4, you'll notice that if you have a copy of God's Word in front of you, that that verse has been removed from your Bible. And it gives us a clue with uh, what most scholars believe to be a later editorial explanation here, okay? Basically, this was a pool that people believed had supernatural powers. The legend said that an angel would come down from time to time and stir the waters of this pool at Bethesda, and the first one to enter the water after it had been stirred received healing. Well, this man could never make it first, or the water didn't work. Either way, he had been in this condition for 38 years, almost a lifetime in the first century. You know, 38 years, that was old. And he's laying beside this pool, thinking that it'll bring the healing that he so desperately desires. And he sees no other option for healing besides this pool of water, and it lets him down time and time again. But we can't be too hard on this man, because we do the same things in our lives all the time when we step step back and think about it. It's just not as evident. You know that we lay beside certain pools, right? Looking to them to bring renewal to our lives. We sit by the pool of comfort, or the pool of sex, or the pool of approval, or beauty, or morality. And we implicitly expect these pools to heal us, to bring transformation that we long for. We think if we could just get deep enough into these pools, then we find renewal. We never explicitly say it that way, but we're functionally asking these pools to heal us, to renew us, to tell us who we are. So let's get back to the original question that Jesus asks. Do you want to be healed? I know you do. And the answer is, of course you want to be healed. Do you know how I know? It's evident by the way we lay around these various pools in hopes of finding health and wholeness. But like this invalid, we're lying beside pools that can't heal us. Like this invalid, we are lying beside these pools that breed cynicism and disappointment and frustration and hopelessness. It's because these pools were never made to renew us. In fact, these pools we sit beside just leave us feeling more powerless. And it's by this pool that Jesus sees this man and he asks a simple question, do you want to be healed? But the answer this man gives isn't so simple, is it? In response to the question, we see the man answer in verse 7. Look at it. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Now that's a confusing answer. No one can put me in the pool, and before I can get there, people go before me. Is that a yes or a no? (laughs) You want to be healed? Yes or no? Basically, this man is answering Jesus' offer of healing by saying, I don't know. He defaults into blame and excuses when the, when the offer of healing is sitting right there in front of him. What is it that held this invalid back from jumping at the offer of healing? Why would he not immediately scream, yes, I want to be healed? It's been 38 years. What keeps you and me back from the same offer? A few things come to mind that might keep us from taking Christ's offer in our lives. Maybe we're, we think we're not that bad. We've already touched on that. We agree that we can do better. 
Maybe I can be more self-sacrificial as a friend. Maybe I can relate with my family in healthier ways. Maybe I get a little carried away with substances sometimes. But I don't need to be transformed. Come on, isn't that a little dramatic? Maybe blame holds us back from change. It's not really my fault I get so angry. It's people who push my buttons that trigger me. Sure, I struggle with lust, but I can't help that I live in an over-sexualized culture. It's so easy to blame others for our lack of health. Still, others of us don't jump at Jesus' offer of restoration because I think we've grown comfortable with being sick. We've gotten used to our broken way of life. We've come to rely on our healthy way of unhealthy way of life to get by. We've grown cynical and lost any sense of hope. We want a quick remedy, not true change. We want to numb our souls with lust or gossip or sex, even morality. You can, you can numb your soul with being good. And we're not sure what it would mean if we gave these things up. We're not sure if we can handle life without these things. Like this man, we've begun to identify ourselves by our illness. 38 years. This is who he was, an invalid. So much so that he wasn't even sure he wanted to be healed. And because being healed would force him to learn a different way of life, it was just easier to go with what he knew. And in many ways, sin just becomes our old friend. We've, we've in many ways resigned ourselves to think it's just the way life is. It's how it's always going to be. In AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a saying, alcoholism might be hell, but at least I know the street news. Health brings obligations to learn a new way. There's a ministry in San Antonio called Strong Foundation. You'd like to have a ministry like this in College Station, too. It's a ministry to families who are pulling themselves out of addiction and poverty. And once they decide they want to move out of this pattern of life of addiction, they're put through a number of classes that help them relearn what it means to engage in society. And these families, they take classes on finances, they go through job training, they get counseling for their addictions. And it happens often that these families don't make it through these programs and slip back into their old way of living. That's not a surprise, is it? And it's heartbreaking, though, when it happens, but it's understandable. Because often it's easier to go back to what's normal than to push through to help and renewal. It's easier to go back to normal than learn a new way of life. And it's scary because when you're healed, things are expected of you, right? It shocks the system. But it's worth it. And God comes and offers a clean start. He wants to restore you, to lead you into a new way of living. And it might be uncomfortable. It always is as you follow him day after day after day. It might be scary. It might take time. There's going to be false starts along the way. But Jesus comes and he offers healing. Do you want to be healed? Mark Buchanan, an author, in his book, The Rest of God, talks specifically about this restoration that Jesus offers in this passage. And he says this. He says, A curious thing about restoration is that it doesn't need doing. Strictly speaking, life carries on without it. Restoration is an invasion. It's fixing something that's broken, but broken so long it's almost mended. This man has already adapted to his misfortunes, made all the necessary adjustments, Restoration meddles with what we've learned to live with. But this man has learned to live this way. He's almost accepted it. He's taught himself tricks to bypass it, to contain it, to utilize it even. He's built his life around not being whole. And so have we in so many ways. 
But Jesus comes and he offers wholeness. He wants to bring that to you this morning. So we've seen Christ's offer of healing, our resistance to healing. Lastly, let's just look quickly at the impact of healing. We see Jesus heal this man with a word in John 5. Jesus heals this man even after this invalid couldn't answer Christ's question about healing correctly. He answers so timidly. There's no enthusiasm, there's no hope from this invalid, yet Jesus still tells the invalid to get up. And that word in the Greek is closely tied to the idea of resurrection. Get up. Be resurrected. It has its roots in this idea of new life. I'm going to bring new life to you. And it's worth stopping to point out that the miracles and healing that we see from Jesus on the pages of the Gospels, they're always meant to point us to a more ultimate healing. A foretaste of the great healing, you might say, that is coming. One day soon, Jesus is going to restore all things and everything will be the way it was created to be. And with his miracles, Jesus is showing us the future condition of humanity. He's giving us an appetizer, so to speak, of what's coming. He's giving us a taste of the shalom that he intends to bring. And I know shalom, that's a strange word. But it's a word that means universal flourishing. Jesus longs to bring universal flourishing to a world that's broken by sin. And it's why he came, to bring cosmic redemption, holistic health, to bring universal flourishing. And we need to keep in mind that being restored by Jesus, it comes with certain expectations. We are called to respond to the healing that Jesus brings. We see Jesus find this man after he heals him and speak to him. Verse 14, look at it. See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, we've got to be careful not to associate sickness with sin in every instance. But at least in this situation, Jesus does associate this man's sin with his physical sickness in some way. Jesus ties his illness to his sin, and by so doing, he's underlining the seriousness of his sin. He's showing us that sin destroys wholeness. And so once we've been made whole by Jesus, once we've been healed, we are called to move out and sin no more. Live a whole life, in other words, is what Christ is saying. We don't live a whole life in order to be forgiven, but once we've received forgiveness, we can live out of that forgiveness. In other words, we're healed so that we can live a transformed life. Jesus finds this man in the temple, he pulls him aside, and he declares, you're well. And that's the truth. I mean, Jesus had done something extraordinary for this man, and now this man has a responsibility. Sin no more. The declarative of what God has done is always followed by the imperative of how we are meant to respond. Grace always manifests its power in holy living. And this holy living will never merit God's grace. You, you will never have more of God's smile than you do right now if you are in Jesus. You can't earn more. You can't lose less. You will always have the same smile if you're in Christ. And God's grace empowers holy living. We don't merit anything. And what we see is that Jesus expects change from this man, though. Jesus expects a change life for you as well. And if you've received the healing that Jesus wants to bring to your life, that reality should transform you. In C.S. Lewis, he paints a beautiful picture of how God wants to transform our lives in his book, Mere Christianity. And I'll close this morning by reading just a small portion of what he says. And he likens you and me to a house that God wants to renew. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house, and at first perhaps you can understand what he's doing. 
He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts deeply and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. Jesus is offering to heal you this morning. He's asking the question, do you want to be healed? Let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful for your offer of healing, for the way that you have pursued us, for the way that you always initiate. And Lord, it, it's easy to think about that offer and to simply determine roll my eyes. But I pray that you would give me the faith to believe that you can really change things. That you can change things in a slow but sure way in this world and in my life. And that as you change things, you bring joy to our hearts and souls. We pray that you would be gracious to us in that way. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Texas A&M RUF podcast. If you're interested in joining us for a large group, we would love to see you at All Faiths Chapel on the north side of campus across from Sabisa at 8 p.m. on Wednesdays. Go ahead and follow at AggieRUF on Instagram for updates about any other events we're putting on. We hope to see you around. Thanks and gig'em.